Keep Talking exists to have conversations that might help to make a better society and a better culture. I believe that each guest has important information and stories to make public. This is the Keep Talking podcast. To support it, please take a second and subscribe to the show. It helps to make this content possible. The following is a conversation with Eric Jorgensen. Eric is an investor, the CEO of Scribe Media, and the author of The Anthology of Balaji, A Guide to Technology, Truth, and Building the Future. During our conversation, Eric talks about what drew him to Balaji Srinivasan as a subject, the overlap between Balaji and the subject of Eric's first book, Naval Ravikant, and the major themes of his new book, Technology, Truth, and the Future. Mark Andreessen famously remarked that Balaji has, quote, the highest output per minute of new ideas of anyone he's ever met. Eric's book documents some of his best and evergreen ideas. Expect to learn Balaji's thoughts on wealth creation, what to prioritize in life, and the importance of risk-taking, independence, and building something valuable. I think anyone who is interested in seeing the world more clearly, becoming more imaginative about our potential future, and being a better version of themselves will treasure this book. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Eric Jorgensen. Mr. Jorgensen, it's good to see you again. Uh, really happy that we were able to connect and make time to talk about this new book. Welcome. Great to see you. Good to see you. Thanks for having me back. I like this tradition. Me too. Me too. I hope we can keep this up as we grow older and more grays, uh, you know, head into our our facial hair and, and, uh, head as we, as we, as we get up there, you know, first I want to just say congratulations. I know this, uh, doing an undertaking like this is no small feat and I'm sure this took years of time to create it. So congrats on the book and, um, well done. I, I loved your first one and, uh, congratulations on this, this one that just, I know came out. Thank you. Yeah. It's, uh, at least this second book, I knew what I was getting into. So I didn't mm-hmm. have the, like the pain of, uh, false hope. Of being like, oh, I'll be done in a few months. Like I knew, I knew what I was biting off. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's a, it's fantastic to have a line of work where there's such clear sort of delineations of, of finish lines. You know, you, mm-hmm. you write a book for a few years, you get to publish it, and then you get to start another one. Uh, it's a cool thing to have a finish line like that to get to go through and just brick by brick move totally. forward. I know your first book has done extraordinarily well. And I've looked, you know, even yesterday I was looking at the Amazon reviews and I think I read somewhere that you're already over a million copies for the Naval book. I thought I might just begin the conversation by asking, you know, I think you and I are both probably have very similar interests and I've been a Naval fan for years. I've, I loved your book as I know so many other people did. How did you pick out of all the people on earth you could have you know, really spent your a couple of years of your life working on and focusing. How did you pick Balaji? What what was the story of what persuaded you that this was a person, this was a person with ideas that were worthy of that sort of endeavor? Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of people worth writing about, and there's a lot of brilliant people in the world. Um, in my unique case, one of the things that I learned from the Almanac of Naval was just that this format had legs like mm. for, for those unfamiliar it's not a book that i wrote about the ideas of naval like i basically built this book using 
podcasts, tweets, blog posts, interviews, public works um, that Nabal had shared previously. And there's not an original word in there for me past the author's note, right? It was just mm-hmm. taking the best things that he had ever said, distilling down these, you know, million plus words of source material and putting the mosaic together to create this book of his best ideas. And I got amazing feedback on the book, but I got amazing feedback on the format. You know, people mm. were like, I don't know what to call this, but I love it. And I'm <laughs> like, oh, that's a really cool reaction to have, right? Um, so part of what I wanted to do was just do that format again. And there's, there's like I said, there's a lot of people worth writing about. There's a lot of brilliant people in the world. But there's a much shorter list that actually is a great candidate for this format, right? They have to be prolific in these kind of ephemeral mediums, right? Podcast, Twitter. Um, they have to be well-known enough that people are excited to read about their ideas, but not so well-known that there's already, you know, 20 books about them. Like, I think that's just me writing a Buffett book would probably, like, not be as useful to the world as being the first person to sort of compile them all and introduce him to you know, these, these millions of people. So it was a short list, um, at least that I was familiar with and excited about because I'd be willing to go spend three years of my life, you know, swimming around in this pool of ideas and organizing them and feel like there's a lot for me to learn personally for me to be attached to see the project all the way through like this. And, you know, Bology was on that list for sure. Um, and a bunch of people were recommending, were like, oh, do biology next, do biology mm-hmm. next. And so we started chatting about it. And I just uh, had, so uh, biology and I were both excited to do it. And having sort of a cooperative, excited, like, partner in this means a lot. And I, mm-hmm. to me, felt like the book would get a better result having a subject that was really excited to support it and talk about it. And I did actually get to interview him for this book. So once the manuscript was about 90% complete, I was like, okay, man, I, like, let's chat. I've got some holes I want to fill in. I got some questions I want to follow up on. And we probably spent over the course of a few days, like 10 hours on mm-hmm. a Zoom call together of me just like diving in, filling in the gaps, asking for nuance, um, exploring different ideas, parts of his career that weren't, hadn't been written about or shared before. So that was a really cool experience too, to just not have to solely rely on the public materials, which is what I did for Noel. Hmm. And I know, you know, the, the full title of the book, I believe is, um, it's, it's really about a combination of different components. It's, it's not just about one theme. I think it's about truth, technology, and the future. Um, I thought maybe I would start by asking before you even began to dig into his work in, uh, with the goal of explicitly making a book about him, what did you know about Balaji the man? What about him, you know, piqued your interest? As you said, this you knew mm-hmm. from your Naval experience this was going to take years of your life. What what about him do you think created that excitement in you to be open th- to that? I knew that he was I knew probably only half of his like actual career accomplishments that was part of what was so interesting to me like for for how many people know him not many people know why they know him, you know or like what his actual background is um in the others i knew a lot i knew he was like a very prescient successful investor and that he had the reputation for sort of seeing farther into the future 
than anybody else. And I thought that was a really interesting thing to explore and understand the mental models behind that, how he got that skill, what it comes from, um, what he had predicted, what he was predicting now, like what things he, how he thought things would unfold. But it was not, I had not followed him as for as long as I had followed Naval, I think, mm. um, or a, a quite as deeply, but it was a really, and in that it was a much more interesting kind of discovery process. Uh, you know, the, the kind of subtitle that you mentioned, you know, the, the core three parts of the book, technology, truth, and building the future, those are not themes that I go into a book knowing, you know, mm. I really start with all I, I start with like as broad as I possibly can of all of the work this person has created, all of the tweets, all of the resources, all their ideas. And then as I sort of break those all of those materials down and process them and find like atomic units of ideas, and then I organize all those ideas, and then I see the themes that come out of organizing those ideas. And then I figure out where how those themes sort of build on each other or what's the most fundamental idea. And then retriage all of the nuggets into sort of into those big themes and then within the big theme what's sort of the order of operations what's the logical progression of these ideas so that as a reader you can go from i don't know who biology is i don't know much about technology i don't know why i should care and you could start at the beginning of this book and sort of you know i i i want I wanted to feel like you could hand it to like an ambitious but undirected 18 year old, for example, mm. you know, a cousin, a little brother, a, you know, little sister, a little anything like, or even a person who's just like unsatisfied with their career when they're 30 and they want to do something with meaning or get a fresh start. Like, they, this, this book should be able to bring you from all the way from first principles of like, this is why technology is important. This is the role that it serves. This is how you think about discovering new technology. This is how you think about which technologies are important. This is how you think about how technologies unlock different opportunities. This is how you rank orders different opportunities. This is how you triage those specific market opportunities. This is how you build a first product to go after them, like all the way through from the very most fundamental thing, which especially in Balaji's case, I don't think he does very often. Mm. He's got a very well thought through intellectual foundation around this sort of ideology of, of technology and of truth. But he spends most of his time talking about like the, the very thin layer on top of all of that and like the contemporary issues affecting it. And I thought it was really useful to show the the strong foundation of thought that goes into these because you could agree with Balaji about all of his most important ideas in this book all the fundamental ideas about truths and technology but come away with very different ideas of how to apply them in your life than than to what he's doing in his mm -hmm. life and i think those would both be great outcomes you know um you know i part of the work is figuring out which ideas to actually include in the books. And that's where I think, you know, Balaji said he presented this book um, to people at the Network State Conference, you know, which is in Amsterdam this year, which is very cool. Mm. And he said, this book is as much Eric as it is Balaji. You know, mm. Balaji has, let's just say, a thousand ideas and the 50 or 60 that I think are the most important and universal and evergreen and 
critical for people to learn that drew me in. That's what's in this book. Mm-hmm. But you, Dan, could sit down and write your own version, and it might have 50 totally different ideas. Maybe 10 would overlap. Like you could, everybody could have a different idea of what the most interesting or useful things that biology has to share might be. And that's just where the, you know, the invisible curator like mm. comes in. I think it's worth recognizing like there's a lot of there's a lot more to him and there's a lot different to him. This is just my perspective on which are the most useful, the most evergreen, the most applicable ideas. Mm. And like Naval, this man has a deep gift for the pithy one-liner or the pithy <laughs> yes, two-liner that I think probably you and I both have a bit of a sweet tooth for which makes reading this book just so interesting and engaging. I've been on a Bology binge for the last three days myself. You know, for, for people that, you know, don't know of him or are hearing of him for the first time, you know, I think for me, he's, he's obviously a thought leader, a digital thought leader, and has been for a number of years, who is respected by some of the people I respect and admire the most online. That's probably how I learned of him initially, Thank personally. You. But for people that have never heard the name, don't know anything about his life, what's a brief biography of of who he is? You know, I know he's middle aged at this point, and I think I just read he's now living in Singapore. If I understand Didn't. that correctly, who is who is the man? What where does he come from? Yeah, he's an interesting dude, um, and I think most people are know of him as like the Twitter guy, you yeah. know, as a thought leader. He's got a very interesting background as an operator and an investor too so i I think that's an important piece so he uh sort of first generation immigrant uh, his parents were immigrants grew up in new york um i think had a rough childhood like in the sense of being like an immigrant kid is tough in new york Mm. um then went to stanford i think undergrad two uh two master's degrees and a phd in computational genomics if i remember correctly at stanford then went to start a a biotech startup um Mm. doing some of the first like genetic testing things like that this is back in the 2000s i want to say um sold that company for some hundreds of millions of dollars i believe in his brother were co-founders of that um Became a general partner in Andreessen Horowitz, was very early to crypto, started a few, uh, started a crypto company that was eventually acquired by Coinbase and became CTO of Coinbase for a little while. So it was like instrumental sort of in that piece. Um, and then along the way, he's been investing, you know, a couple hundred angel investments of which there are some very big names in there. Um, you know, big crypto investor, bio, other startups. And then Probably, I don't know exactly when this started, maybe when he left Coinbase, which is I think to a, around 2019, 2020, has basically been kind of full-time thought leader. Uh, he's been podcasting. He wrote The Network State, which became a Wall Street Journal bestseller like the day it came out, even though it was only in Kindle version. Um, that we're working on making it a, a paperback and hardcover uh, coming soon. Mm-hmm. But uh, he's been really like, working in service of this ideology which is what i tried to sort of lay out in the book as this like technology is this very critical moral good and we need to create a context for it to thrive and 
the place that the U.S. especially is in now is getting closer to where Europe is in the sense of like it's a mature republic, so it's no longer really a frontier. There's not the freedom to be constantly experimenting, taking risks, and doing dangerous things to advance science and medicine and technology. And we've really swung the pendulum from this kind of risk on like push progress, build new stuff as quick as we can, like attitude that we had in like the industrial revolution that really made America what it is. And we've just swung so far the other way. And the fellow just like, man, you know, with the population is growing, like we, if we do not continue to advance technology, scarcity will become a thing and it does not have to become a thing but if we put so many rules and regulations on ourselves that we slow down the advance of technology we make it impossible or too expensive to develop new drugs new technologies extend lifespans like increase the energy usage of society like we are just really getting in our own way on some very important things and people have lost sight of that we prioritize many other things and the reason that he wrote the network state is to show a path towards creating a context where we can have a frontier and continue to sort of run some of these experiments, um, push technology, try these new, you know, genetic treatments, try these new life-saving drugs that the FDA like won't let you try. Um, I don't know. It's a very fascinating, it's, it's perhaps an extreme take, but when you see sort of the deep rooted, study of history that Balaji has done to sort of arrive at this mm. thing, it gets a little more, I don't know, see, it was a little less incredible. You get a little less incredulous and a little more like, oh man, maybe we will live through a much bigger shift than our parents did, you know, in terms of like the political stability and the frontiers and the countries and the earth and stuff like that. And that just, most people aren't used to thinking sort of at that grand scale. Mm-hmm. First of all, the overlap between the life trajectory of Naval and Balaji seemed to be almost uncanny in terms of mm-hmm. how they became who they are and really what, and you write about this documented in the book about him noting what he has used money for primarily, that money for him is a mechanism by which he can buy time and become ideologically independent as somebody who can speak his mind. Um, the the modern digital thought leader. And I think when you merge that with the originality and brilliance of a guy like this, he becomes a very interesting character. I thought perhaps I would read a few of my favorite quotes from the book just to prompt some discussion. And you can take these however you would like, because you know, to your point of what you were just mentioning about the Really, I think what you're saying is the lowering of the risk tolerance in the country for innovation and danger in the name of progress. And you know, you mentioned he and I've heard him say this in in podcast interviews that I've listened to. He mentions the you know the the story of the Wright brothers, and I love David McCullough's book about the Wright brother brothers that came out years ago, and that they just decided to go do this, and then all of a sudden they had had they had basically developed this breakthrough breakthrough technology that had that changed the world there's a quote about technology that i wanted to read to you and then maybe i'll just open it up to you to to speak about anything that you think is relevant beyond this quote about 
technology and the virtue of technology. I mean, one of one of my favorite historic quotes about technology is technology as a shorthand is doing more with less. And this is a quote from you in the book about technology, quote, if the purpose of technology is to reduce scarcity, then the ultimate purpose of technology is to eliminate mortality. You go on in the book to talk about how so much of what is valuable that adds value in the world through technology is reducing the time it takes to do things, travel being one of them historically. I just wanted to put that quote to you in general and just give it to you to to speak about anything else. And I, I love what you said earlier about giving this book to you know your your younger family members or younger people as a as a gift to get them oriented towards what technology really has meant for humanity in general. So I want to give that to you and and allow you to speak to the theme of technology in any other way that you think would be relevant. Yeah, I think I mean I'll start with the technology and lifespan thing because I think that's really interesting. Very near to that quote, uh, Biology mentions that there the kind of key metric of technological progress used to be lifespan. Mm. Like every time we added a new capability in medicine or we made cars safer or we made cars instead of horses or we figured out germ theory or there's many examples. Um, figured out how to do open heart surgery, like mm. figured out antibiotics. Think about how many things we've discovered to prevent tragic death mm. or extend lifespan. And for, you know, you can find these charts that for decades previously, it's just a steady upward trend of life expectancy. And that's true with different slopes pretty much all around the world. Mm. And very recently, I don't know if it's 10 years, 20 years, 40 years, that life expectancy has started to go down mm. for the first time in like for a, in a meaningful percentage for the first time in a long time. And it's just an interesting example of like, you know, we've now invented like, I don't know, fast food, like processed sugar, uh, sedentary lifestyles, um, smoking, like I, all of these things sort of contribute to We've actually reduced our lifespans, but we have also not taken, there's a bunch of interesting science that is potential enormous lifespan extensions hmm. that is just like caught up by the FDA experimental treatments that are not being, that being done. And now that we've um, sort of been successful in some of the genetic science in, in the recent past, there's a lot of reasons to be optimistic that we'll be able to extend our lifespans again, but it's also being uh, very heavily regulated to the point of to the point where there's really not progress, tangible progress for like average people at all. Um, and th there's a good book that Biology recommends about the FDA that is like a little bit of a. Um, Well, it's, a, it's an exploration, I guess, of how the FDA has sort of become a power unto itself and how it has acted to, in its own self-interest to just preserve itself rather than serve the function that it was created to serve. And I think that's true. That's true of all systems, right? Like that's a law of systems. 
and it's true to a large extent in government systems. Um, but the FDA is an interesting one because there are cases that have gone to the Supreme Court where terminally ill patients have demanded the right to try an experimental drug that could save their life. And they have lost those cases. And if the patient wants to try the drug and the drug could save their life, but even if the drug didn't save their life, but it helped advance the science, hmm. like you should have the personal freedom to take that drug. That is that is someone trying to, yes, trying to roll a dice and like get a good outcome for themselves. It's also a heroic act hmm. to be the first person to take an experimental drug, to be a test pilot, to be an astronaut. Like these were American heroes, heroes of any culture. And the government or government agencies or establishments or institutions, however you want to phrase it, in many cases is like robbing us of the agency to be those heroes in, in this sort of like system of, yeah, to your point that like maximizes safety at the cost of, of freedom and at the cost of progress in many cases. Um, it's, it, that is what I hope this, um, you know, if, if there's one, like, I think the most important idea in this book is this very fundamental thing. This like technology is just the foundation of many good things in our society. You know, you can go all the way back. It's the reason why we're not being eaten by a, you know, tiger. It's the reason why we're warm, why we have a roof over our heads, why we're well fed, um, why we have information that we have, why we have the knowledge that we have. Like, these are very important things to respect and preserve because if we don't continue to respect and appreciate technology and continue to try to advance it, like, it does not get better on its own. It doesn't even stay the same on its own. It will actively erode. And there are plenty of stories throughout history of civilizations that have lost capabilities that they had previously gained. And there's no guarantee that we, you know, are going to have heat, air conditioning, computers, electricity, um, cars, space travel, air travel, you know, in the next century. And if we don't, if we don't continue to make space for it politically, personally, and appreciate it and prioritize it um you know it could really we we could we could usher in a dark age i don't think we're close yeah. to that but that is the direction that we need to fight with all our might um and there's a lot more people than there used to be that i think don't take that as a given hmm. what is your overall takeaway for his big suggestion of how to avert that future you know i i heard him say this earlier today in an interview i was listening to and i it was such an interesting idea that I had never heard before, like so many of his ideas are, where he was mentioning that what what America was to Europe, essentially like, and this is a very startup term, it, uh, basically a fresh start, a pivot to creating something new afresh, that basically the internet is to America what America was to Europe. It's It's the new frontier. It's the new opportunity for innovation and change. Mm -hmm. When you talk about, um, you know, the the fear of the future for stasis and lack of growth and lack of innovation and what that could mean for us, and I think you know, I I definitely fall under the illusion that it's just a given that these uh, progressions will continue as we get older. And I remember, Lorna, you mentioned this earlier about the uh, the 
life inspect- life expectancy in America going down, I believe for the first time ever, uh, a fact I didn't mm-hmm. believe at first until I saw it in multiple sources. You know, what, what's your big takeaway from what, what his suggestion would be as to how to push back against this and uh, give us the highest likelihood of allowing some of these innovations given their risks to potentially come about. I'm a little more, I'm a little more optimistic than biology is maybe, and maybe naively so that the government itself can change. Like there can be reform inside existing institutions and that we can, you know, vote for and promote people who understand that this is an important thing and to kind of cut back some of the regulation and encourage more technology, not with subsidies, but just with the freedom to experiment. Mm -hmm. Um, That, you know, this is, this is a complex system and who knows how it all unfolds. There are, um, you know, America is also competitive. And as we see other countries build some of these things, I think we will also wake up and be like, oh shit, Mm -hmm. um, we better get on our horse. Like we got some work to do. Like we do not like being number two. And there's a bunch of people who are going to make us look slow and dumb. Um, in a lot of these categories, if we don't, if we don't get to work on it. So I, I understand and respect the path of the network state. I am excited about it. I think it is making amazing progress. I think it's an awesome way to go, but I also think most people listening to this are not going to like pack up and move to somewhere far around the world with like a wild new frontier of jurisdiction. And I don't think they have to, to make an impact on this issue. I think it's just an important thing to recognize. And I think no matter where you are, what your job is, it can benefit from technology. Like the the definition that you dropped that doing more with less, Mm. that's an amazing way to look at it. Like more technology is faster. It makes you do the same thing faster, better or cheaper. It helps you get more progress. It lowers prices. Like almost whatever you're doing, the introduction of new technology is by definition, lets you do it in a better way or lets you do more of it for the same price or lets you do the same thing in a cheaper way. Um, and that is an opportunity that's available to all of us. Like is probably a way to pop open like jet GPT, use AI to do your job like a little more effectively. And that is a way to move that ball forward. Right. Um, there's probably a way to like, you know, adopt an autonomous car a little sooner um, or support them when they come to your town. I think that's a really autonomous cars is a really interesting Rorschach test for this. That's happening right now. Um, 10 years ago when this sort of concept emerged and Google was like, Hey, I think we can make cars drive themselves. Everyone was like, are you kidding me? That's incredible. What an age of miracles. So many millions of people die senselessly. I can't wait till we have self-driving cars that will really feel like living in the future. 10 years later today, we have self-driving cars. People are sharing videos of them all over the internet. They are an absolute miracle of technology. Mm. Huge respect for all the engineers that built them. And thank God they did all that hard work. It should be expected that along the way towards building self-driving cars, some accidents occur. Some lives may be lost. It is already demonstrably shown by the data way less lives than are lost in human driving. It's much safer. The insurance companies say it's safer. Fewer accidents. 
but because it's like a new way to die, people are absolutely panicked about it. They're writing article, like the media coverage of self-driving cars is absurdly biased. And I, I don't, I don't understand. Like, I find that position very difficult to steal, man. Like, I don't understand who is like, what is the worldview of someone who is so staunchly against self-driving cars and the impact that they could have on saving all of these lives and reducing the need for people to spend their lives behind the wheel of a truck or a taxi. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I understand there's a lot of potential short-term job displacement, but like, tell me it wouldn't be better to be a drone truck driver, like working from home in a comfortable chair than sleeping away from your family, you know, five out of six nights for a year. Um, so it, it is a painful thing to watch this miracle, this like miracle of new technology actually interact with the real world and see so many people panic and recoil and push back. And, you know, Cruz was operating in San Francisco and a few other cities and had this accident that wasn't, as far as I understand, the autonomous car was not solely at fault, mm-hmm. but it was involved in a death in a fatal car accident. Um, and just everybody panicked and like crews laid people off. They're changing their production schedule. It, that that event and the media around it is going to meaningfully delay. It seems like at this point, well, it seems like we'll meaningful delay, meaningfully delay the rollout of autonomous cars, which will, if you're just looking through God's eyes at America, will almost certainly cost tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands more lives. And it's an unconscionable moral failure because we are just don't respect the value that this new technology can create in our lives. And it's so short-sighted. Um, and that's just, that's just one that we have like Mm -hmm. thinking about what the, what reality we would live in today if we had actually embraced nuclear power in the seventies, instead of functionally making it illegal to build new nuclear power plants after a few accidents. Um, it's, um, it's a really, really interesting mental exercise to go through. And, and, you know, it's not to say that the losses aren't painful, but it's when the gains are so intangible, but so enormous, it just takes that little leap of thought to think about, you know, what is the value that could be created that wasn't? What is the value that we could be building for ourselves in 10 years that we're not right now? And where are we just punching ourselves in the face with stupid regulations or stupid overreactions or stupid fears of uh of the short-term cost and not seeing the long-term gain if there's anything that i have learned about the media over the years it's that fear sells and i think a lot of i i totally agree with what you just said i believe it's something like thirty thousand people a year die in america every year roughly the same number every year because of motor vehicle accidents and you know to your point of what what could be possible with reducing that by orders of magnitude? Um, it, to me, it's also just ethically unconscionable that this is not being um, the new technology is not being promoted and given the perspective that I think is really warranted. You know, I was going to say something when Dude, you were on, yeah, go ahead on that on that media point. So I have a friend who worked for Cruise, uh, still still works for Cruise. This is the GM's like autonomous car company on. They literally the day that they first had autonomous, fully autonomous, no ride along driver 
running in San Francisco, the headline of TechCrunch was self-driving cars are never going to happen. Totally distinct. They had no, they didn't write about it cruise happening. They wrote about self-driving cars are never going to happen. That was the headline in TechCrunch the day that self-driving cars became a reality. And I do not know how we got to this place where like tech publications, nominally tech publications are so overtly like anti-technology and so disconnected from the reality of what's actually happening inside these tech companies that are building new capabilities. I just thought that was such a hilarious, poetically perfect, like it was fiction, you wouldn't believe it moment of reality mm-hmm. um, that he's te- he's like texting me like super excited. Cruz is piloting the first thing and I'm like scrolling Twitter and I see TechCrunch writing about how it'll never happen. And I'm like, what, what, what is this? Somebody square the circle for me. Like, I do not understand. Well, the, the zeitgeist in general, and you, you note this in the book that it's much more black mirror than limitless right now. You know, that, that was, that was actually a film I had seen. It's now rather obscure, but it's an interesting point of data because I suppose it's one of the few movies that's been made in recent history that, you know, creates a more optimistic view of what technology can really bring to our civilization versus, I think, the much more popular movies and TV shows. And perhaps it's because fear sells like Black Mirror, which I also love, um, that more people are are terrified of new technology than they are excited about it. I, I was going to say this earlier about your books and some of why I think they've been of such enduring value to people. You used the word evergreen earlier and my favorite books these days tend to have that kind of information in them. And they're also great to reread as you, as you age and as you're looking for a good book to just reread something that was formative for you when you were younger, because the principles that are often laid out in these books are so incredible. And I wanted to read a few of these other evergreen quotes that you have in this book that uh, I think just culturally really helps in such a chaotic time to reorient people towards, you know, both what matters and what is true. And that's one of the themes in your book is truth. Um, There were two that I wanted to read about truth specifically, which is the first one is quote, your, and this is from Balaji, but it's about, and there's, there's a lot of overlap with Nabal with this quote and this idea as well. In terms of priorities in life, quote, you're pursuing truth, health, and wealth in that order. A couple of years ago when we talked, I think the Naval book was something about health, wealth, and happiness, something like that. Yeah. And it's basically the same idea. The second quote about tr- truth, which I, I wrote down and wanted to read to you, which is just you know enduringly the case about the reality that we live in, quote, if it's not independently reproducible, it's not science. Science being objective reality that is ver- verifiably true for all people on Earth. Um, this might be a decent time to just give it, give the second theme to to your book to you, and and add anything else that you think is worth mentioning about truth as a concept. Um, maybe I'll just give it to you and let you take it away. Yeah, I think. Um, well, I think there's endless hours of conversation to compare and contrast of all anthology. I think they're fascinating. Um, and I think they're, they're different enough. They're very different, but they are very complementary also. Mm. Um, and I like to think that 
some of the open questions that you were left with from reading the, the book about Naval that is very like kind of philosophical and bleeding into strategy. And Balaji is like strategy bleeding into tactics. And mm-hmm. so it's a little mm-hmm. bit of a logical progression of like the answering the hows or the whys um, of each of, of kind of the book before. Truth is an interesting section. It is one that I had no, you know, talk about like kind of concepts that emerge as you do the, the work to curate and organize things. I had no idea this this was going to be a theme that worked out. I just had all these different, um, there's a lot of mentions of media and biology talks about media a lot. He talks about some of the technologies that could enable a new type of media or a new media movement and like all these different ideas for how to start new media companies, which I think are really fascinating for Mm -hmm. if we're in this world of podcasting, I think we're already, it's still sort of a subculture on the edge of media creation. So I think we're closer to that frontier than than most people just by by being here. But the foundation of that is really this strong desire for truth. And truth is a we think we all know what it means. And I theology does a really interesting exercise of showing us different types of truth. Um and as you mentioned, scientific truth is a very different thing than say political truth so political truth is something that is just whatever the consensus believes like we all know who the president is and then we'll all vote and then we'll have a new president that's not a scientific truth like an alien wouldn't arrive at the same conclusion just it wouldn't be obvious to them just by like froze the earth and they came down and they started examining things um the and then scientific truth is even slightly distinct from like mathematic technical truth uh, where you can have absolute scientific is this like asymptotic approach to certainty based on you know your your sample size and your experience. Um, but everything that we know is in the process of being disproven. Like we've mm-hmm. made a lot of progress from the scientists of years past, but it's always this, you know, how much closer can we approximate our understanding of the universe? S- many things that we know, like quote unquote know today as scientific truths may turn out to be wrong. Mm-hmm. And we're we're in the very early innings of society. Like civilization is only a few thousand years old, really. Like since we've actually been writing, we are pretty dumb dirt monkeys in the scheme of things. Like if civilization is around for another hundred thousand years, another million years, like we are, we're not even in school yet. Like we're in preschool, maybe we're toddlers compared to like future human civilizations. Assuming we don't blow ourselves up. Um, so in the scope of what things that could be known, things that could be understood, we're still very early on and holding space for those truths to continue to evolve and to know that we really have to continue to explore them and invest in exploring them and that, you know, technology and the things that we are able to do, the capabilities that we're able to create for each other and, you know, back to being like warm and safe and happy and well-fed. Um, which I don't think any of us want to give up, you know, that truth and the truth seeking mechanism of society is upstream of doing good engineering and building good technology and distributing that technology to people. And he does a really interesting like exercise where he shows you why that matters. Like, you know, 
there's a sense, especially when you're talking about media to be like, oh, the truth, like nobody knows the truth. It's all just these like competing narratives. And does the truth matter anyway? And the answer is like, yes, very much. Yes. Um, like the, the practice of finding truth, the practice of getting closer to working with the underlying reality, getting the result that you actually want out of it. It's how you do good engineering. It's how you run good supply chains. It's how you grow enough food for your population. And like a capitalist machine built on truth outperforms sort of this like USSR, like centrally planned communist exercise where they were just like lying a little bit all the time mm. and didn't have the incentive to discover the truth and act upon it. They were trying to like manifest the truth rather than discover the truth. And it's a very fascinating exercise and it shows you kind of why we should all be, we are not biologically programmed to be truth seeking machines. You know, mm. we're biologically programmed to be social animals. And that's really that Delta that I think like the media exacerbates of like fear cells, um, unity cells, like tribalism cells, but reality is what actually pays. And reality mm. is what, uh, you know, fundamental truth and, successfully interacting with it through through science and engineering is actually what feeds us clothes us keeps us you know warm safe and happy mm. um and it's really important to not lose sight of that there's a uh i remember this was just a throwaway line in a book i think it was Dave, a david deutsch uh line about truth and you know he's the a great physicist and um, I, 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 Elon recently said a line, something about how, uh, you know, f- physics is reality and everything else is negotiable, um, yeah, something yeah. akin to that. But the, the Deutsch line is that all knowledge is conjectural, um, yeah, no. conjectural being a word I didn't know before he said that and then looked it up and it, it, it basically means incomplete to your point it's got, that it's, it's our always, best guess. it's our best guess. And it's almost like there's a, ne- there's a necessity for, people and i think you're totally right that we're more social animals more lawyers than we are scientists we're much more inclined to tell stories about what's true than really be try to be objective i think by default but needing to hold two things in mind at the same time one that knowledge is conjectural but our understanding our best understanding of what is true is all we have and it's what's built all of the best things in the world um that have led to freedom and prosperity and all the themes that you have written so well about in these two books that again, I mean, to me are, they're so valuable because they are evergreen for the readers and for just people in general who are looking to make a great life for themselves. And I, I know we're getting sort of near the end of our time together. And I want to make sure that I read some of my, my other favorite lines from your book, and the last one is about the last subsection of the book is about the future. Um, and there are just some cr- amazing runaway or throwaway lines and just pithy statements that I, I think are worth stating here and would love to get, you know, any, any follow-up you have on the theme in general. One is, and I'd never quite heard it put this way, quote, you want a win-win mentality rather than a crabs in the bucket mentality, a win and help win mentality is even better. That has proven to be true in my life so many times. Here's another one. Wealth creation is the technological creation of order. And you go into this in detail about ethical wealth creation and what wealth really is. 
wealth wealth creation is the technological creation of order. It is the difference between a bunch of bricks lying on the ground and a house. The difference between a bunch of pieces of wood lying on the ground and a chair. Here's another one. Quote, the hard way to gain status, and this is moving in more into like the philosophy section of the book or philosophy components of the book. Quote, the hard way to gain status is to build something, to accomplish something, to add value. The easy way to gain status is to accuse someone else of being a bad person. Here's a couple more. Quote, the point of doing a startup is to build something you can't buy. And then the final one, quote, financial independence, we alluded to this earlier, financial independence is also personal and ideological independence. If you have financial independence, the crowd can't economically cancel you. I know there's a lot there, and you can take any of those that you would want to speak about at length, but the the win and help win idea I know is going to be one that that sticks with me, sticks with me, and also just the importance of wealth. You mentioned this about communism earlier, about their capacity for lying. And I think that always tends to be the path towards folly and failure and tragedy oftentimes, and how their big idea was that wealth, ethical wealth creation was impossible. I think you very, very clearly and uh, succinctly put the, put the lie to that in some of the examples that you give in the book. Want to just put those to you and have you add anything else you think is relevant for the listener? That that should have been the whole podcast. Is you reading quotes? Like you don't need me at all. That's way better. The I like this section because I think it closes the gap, and I feel like I've, I've probably it's been an error to spend so much time, uh, kind of in this podcast so far, even like moralizing or like talking at a kind of societal level and like using shoulds that's not how i like to Mm. think and not how i like to think of my books um Mm. as being like an admonishment Mm. what i hope for and what i think is true if you read this book is that it's a useful guide to creating a better situation for yourself like I am under no delusion that uh, people are out here reading books because like they just love doing homework or because they're trying to find the greatest moral good to do for the greatest number of people. Um, like you read a book to try to make your life better, to try to, you know, find a better job, build a better company, sell more things, have a happier family, find more purpose, like feel good about the work that you're doing. Um, and I think this, you know, the whole final section, part three, building the future is really where some of the more philosophical or more ideological things that we talked about so far get integrated into like your daily life and become attacked, become a, oh, this is what I'm supposed to do, or this is what I could do. And it doesn't have to be going to start a tech company. It could be doing your job a little bit differently. It could be. Um, just finding ways to win that finding ways to change how you think about your work that help you win more easily. Um, it could help you be a better leader. It could help you just feel better about how you spend your time. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, it's a really interesting like era that we are living in where 
people think the call to action to so many things is like, oh, talk about it. Like, go march in the street. Go, um, go share your story. Go post online. And that's just so useless compared to building something. Like, don't complain. Just go build the thing that you want. Um, and to, to the other quote that you shared of like, that's how wealth is created. That's how wealth is created for you. That's how wealth is created for your customers. That's how wealth is created for society. Like, as you can solve problems for people, you could turn that pile of wood into a chair. You could turn that pile of bricks into a house. Um, you can turn that, you know, turn that nothing into useful software. Um, you could turn those ideas you have into a book. Like, that is wealth creation for yourself and for the people around you. Then that's the beauty of all this and being use technology to do it. Often you can do it at a tremendous scale. You can do it without, you know, breaking your back. You can do it for millions of people in parallel. Um, there's a really, there's really a great future for society on the other side of using and embracing technology, but there's also a greater future for you personally in adopting some of these ideas, making them your own, especially if you can bring them to a place where people don't already appreciate them. And I mean, you'll you be the second coming if you can mm -hmm. bring, you know, a, a high scale, high technology solution into an industry or even a company that, isn't thinking this way, isn't thinking about how to generate wealth, isn't thinking about how to use more scale technology solutions, isn't anywhere near the cutting edge frontier. Um, it's how you can become more valuable. It's how you can create more value. It's how you can capture more value. Um, take more time off, retire a little sooner, like make some money on the side, uh, whatever the thing is. Like, I think there's applicable lessons in yeah. Amen to that. And I think you're you're totally right about why people really are are interested in these books and and understandably so. It's about trying to make the best life for yourself that you possibly can. And I want to make a comment and then close with a final question to you. And the comment I want to just make is that um you know, you're just uh, it's a thank you to you. But I know I speak to many people who speak for many people who will never meet you about the value you've created over just these two books, which I know has been a fraction of your life, but has been, uh, I know, very meaningful for many people and is a touchstone for a lot of people's thinking that they come back to, myself included. So I wanted to just give, say that to you, that, that um, you know, the, the amount of value that I think you have created with just these two books is, is pretty enormous. And uh, I, we all owe a debt to you for the hard work that I know it, it took to make that happen. And I, maybe I wanted to close with this question, which is, you know, in your, you just spoke about this, about how, you know, this is really for books are, are typically about people trying to um, improve their life, especially books like this. And I would imagine part of the, the joy and the interest for you in getting more familiar with Balaji was to learn from him. Um, how have you changed, if any, you know, in your habits, in your outlook, um, you spent, I think you, you mentioned this, it was a three-year project, something like this. How do you notice, what changes do you notice in yourself, if any, from, you know, you know swimming in the, in the sea of Balaji and you know, being a part of, of his mind for as long as you have? Yeah, it's always, I know that I change a lot when I work on these books. Mm. It's always, 
I, I assimilate the ideas like so thoroughly into mm. I, I make them my own really in a way that's like sometimes hard to recall the sources. I know I definitely I invest very differently than I used to. Um, you know, I have a small startup venture fund and my tolerance for being doing way more um, you know, frontier tech, deep tech, much farther out sort of investments. It really pushed me even farther in that direction. Um, there's another great book called Where's My Flying Car that was pushed me in that direction as well. Um, so that fundamental appreciation of technology became a really big, uh, a big one for me. I think I learned to see a little further into the future. You know, like Mark Andreessen says of biology, like when he's wrong, it's because he over extrapolates, not under extrapolates. Mm. He takes an idea to 11 when like maybe in real life it stops at a six, but most of us can only see to a two or a three. So I think I'm, I'm trying to learn to stretch myself closer to seeing a four or a five. And I think as a, uh, my skill in that has gotten much stronger and has made me a better investor. It's made me a better um, sort of guide to portfolio companies. It's been more helpful to founders. Um, maybe change my taste a little bit in like what companies i find interesting like do not do not pitch me like SaaS for dogs anymore like i want to meet people working on like robotic drone construction companies and mm. like the high energy like much more technical or huge market or further advanced technologies um and we've done some really cool investments in that in that space so that's changed my taste for sure um it's maybe much more dubious of media. And I've read some of the books he recommends like, um, the gray lady Wait is a good one, uh, by Ashley Rinsberg about the history of the New York times and different points in history that it is sort of, um, intentionally or unintentionally like misreported massive world events and sometimes influence them for the worse. Um, I mean, the whole final thing is really like, you know, th these fundamental mindsets um, are things I tended to believe, but sometimes it gives you more, um, either more conviction or more language to understand it. Um, it's given me a greater appreciation for like finding frontiers and the tension between regulation and progress. Um, and it's a lot, it's a lot. It's so, it's so hard mm -hmm. to like boil a down a question like that. Um, I mean, in the course of writing these books, I probably, you know, I go through all the content that the person's created, but then I read and reread and reread and reread the, you know, the things that make it into the book and the ones that don't. I've probably read this book 20 times by the time I finish writing. Um, and it's really like the ideas get really, really in there, mm. which is why it's so easy for me to have such conviction that I say like, I think this is a valuable use of your time. I hope you read it. I hope you read it multiple times. I hope you find it useful to reference. Um, I really think there's like something useful for every person on every page. And I don't, you know, there's, there's no fluff in here. You can read it in four or five hours. I think you'll have something memorable to come out of it that will be at least one idea that you can take and use that can change your life, whether that's how you do your job or what company you start or an investment that you make, or just how you think about your work. Um, how you think about what's important in your life, how you decide what to believe and what not to believe and how you triage different sources. And you know, if it, if this changes the information that you 
allowed to inform you and that you act upon in the real world, like that's a skill that will pay dividends for decades um, to keep you from making potentially some really terrible mistakes and maybe guide you towards some really profitable ones. Um, and I think sort of the, the seeds that grow that skill are in this book. So it's, um, I don't know, I think, I think there's so, uh, I'm biased obviously, um, but like I feel like, I feel so lucky to basically be the first reader of this book. Like that's really how I think about my role, right? It's like I'm not writing this. I'm just, I'm curating everything that biology has to teach us into this package that I would want, that is the best thing that I can imagine that I could want to learn from to learn his very best ideas in a really tight, well-organized way that is just useful for me. Um, and so I go back and reference the ideas in here too. And I, I hope other people sort of um, see what I see in that and feel, you know, as, as you were so kind to say, like feel some benefit, get some value from, you know, the years of work that went into this. Yeah. I, I've believed this for years that I think a lot of the best art in the world is creating something you wish you would have had, or you would like to see in the world. And you, you know, that in the book as well. Um, uh, Eric, this is such a pleasure, man. Uh, I know we could do this for much, much longer, but, um, really appreciate you giving me the time with how busy you are and, uh, congrats again. Thank you very much. I hope to be back for the next one. Would love that. Thanks buddy. Thank you for listening to this episode of Keep Talking. If you're finding value in this podcast, please consider supporting the show via the links below on Venmo, PayPal, or Patreon. Your support helps to make these conversations possible. 